Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to the jungle. I should be called George. That would be perfect. I don't know if you can see it, but there are elephants, zebras, wild boar, everything. And then uh, all of us, <laughs> the animals. <laughs> well, I hope you're enjoying James. I am. We're in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 this morning. I'd like to read it to us. Chapter 2, starting with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, not also, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Well, it's been confirmed, faith without works is incredibly relaxing. That came from a fictitious spoof, a, a satire of a man that they, uh, they named Nathan Peterson, and uh, they show him as a Christian who rejects what James has to teach about faith. And uh, here's just an excerpt. I won't uh, share the whole piece with you. Peterson pointed out that faith without works allows for a much easier life. If I allowed my saving faith to be shown through my works, I'd have to be like uh, a lot more disciplined like a disciple or something, dying to myself? That sounds like a whole lot of work. 
The man also tore out the book of James from his Bible as he found it offensive and problematic. Yeah, James was really harshing my mellow, he said. All that stuff about faith without works being dead, it was a total bummer. Well, I don't know if you've met a Nathan Peterson. Uh, maybe James harshes your mellow. But I have to plead guilty. There's a little Nathan Peterson in me. Who doesn't want to eat for free? And yes, James harshes my mellow. But so does Jesus, Paul, and the Apostle John. I have to plead guilty. Jesus, for example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 43, 44, and 45, or Matthew 7, 15 through 20, and I could uh, bring some other passages to our attention, talks about a tree being known by its fruit. That has to do with what the tree produces, what comes from the tree. He says, in fact, in Luke 6, 43 through 45, a good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. Or Paul, what a precious passage is what he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that salvation being saved, is not of yourselves. It is a gift, not of works, but faith. But then he goes on to say in verse 10, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what James, just like Paul, is saying, we don't earn this gift, it's a gift. This grace that's shown to us, this mercy that's shown to us in Jesus Christ. But this gift makes a difference in us. It brings us into the family of God. It makes us a child of God. And like a child to a father, a father influences the child. And the child is shaped by the father. And uh, a child, we hope, becomes a chip off the old block, as we say, or used to say. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2. Whoever says or claims, I know God, and yet does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Or in chapter 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live in God ought to live as Jesus did. Or verse 9, whoever claims to be in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. So all of these teachings and so much more, you see, put an emphasis on our faith changing us. Our faith speaks of our relationship, that we now have entered a new covenant in Jesus Christ, a new identity 
and we become new people. Sometimes in theology, they talk about that as sanctification, the process of, of this change, of becoming more like Christ. So Jesus and Paul are not on opposing teams. They're on the same team in the same game, but playing different positions. And not only that, but seeing one, so to speak, on offense and one on defense. I do think it's likely that James is challenging a wrong-headed view of justification by faith. There will always be some Nathan Petersons who twist what Paul taught on faith or twist <laughs> what James taught, as we saw in that spoof. Why would anyone do that? Because faith uh, without works is uh, incredibly relaxing. Faith works. It behaves like it believes. And here in this passage, James has some questions to answer, some challenges to address, and some examples to show us. And so I want us to look at this just a little more closely. And I'll have something to say, I think, a little uh, bit later, but, you know, I'm, in my own walk with Christ, my faith is always running ahead of me. You know, my beliefs are always running ahead of me and saying, catch up, catch up, come on, come on. If, if we live in a, an awareness of our imperfections and our failings and that we, we continue to be sinners even though in Christ we are saints with an inheritance and called children of God, that's not abnormal. But what we can learn about the, the way faith should work, even if sometimes we're playing catch-up, that can be a good thing. It doesn't have to be a distressing thing. And that's what I, I believe James wants us to appreciate, is faith should always be, so to speak, seeking to catch up. It's not a works for your salvation. It's uh, a desire uh, to become more like Christ because of your identity in Christ, because of this free gift of salvation. Our behavior is a reflection of what we truly believe. There's a, a correlation that we're always, uh, we're always seeking to be authentic and live out our faith. If you find your faith incredibly relaxing, James suggests we consider these questions in verses 14 through 17. And there are two questions right off the bat in verse 14. The first question is, uh, what use is faith that does nothing? That's basically what James is saying. Uh, what use is a faith that does nothing? And it's very important to understand that the next question, now the next question follows right on the heels of that. The King James Version reads this way, can faith save him? But all modern translations word it a little bit differently than the King James Version, and 
word it more accurately. Can that kind of faith, can a faith that does nothing, a faith without actions, in fact, for every place that you see the word works, you could supply mentally actions of faith or expressions of faith or uh, the results of faith the results of believing God, the results of taking God at his word, the results of taking risks to obey God when he says, love that enemy or show mercy to that person. Or take me at my word when I say I love you. Take me at my word that I forgive you in, in my son Jesus Christ. You see, if we took those things to heart, that would influence our feelings and uh, influence the choices and the actions of our life. But it's very clear in the Greek language, he says, what use is a faith that does nothing? A faith without any actions, expressions, or works. And then the follow-up question in that verse, verse 14, should be understood. Can that kind of faith save you? And just if you're wondering, we call that the anaphoric use of the article. In other words, the first use of faith it describes a kind, he describes a kind of faith. And then the next use of faith, he uses the article with it, and it points back to the faith he was talking about and brings what he was saying forward. And he said, can that kind of faith save you? So that should be very clear to us, and it's very important to his argument. James isn't saying works must be added to faith. He's saying real faith, authentic faith, genuine faith, will be characterized by actions that express what we believe. And we expect that from people in our lives whether we're shopping or driving or dealing with children or parents or friends or a pastor, you want someone who's going to be authentic. What they say is something that they really believe in and that they would do themselves. When they say, I'll be there on time, you, there, you show up and you expect them to be there on time. So this is, not, this is not some kind of strange alternative, uh, some rogue kind of faith that James is talking about. He's dealing with a problem among some of these early Jewish Christians that are taking this faith. And maybe they have in some way been uh, influenced by rumors or secondhand reports of things that Paul uh, was teaching but he wants to set the record straight, and he wants us to appreciate what a real faith looks like. James has been showing the effects of faith already. Now, this is important. So think back. Um, for example, in chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 14, he talks about hearing and doing and not just hearing. Remember that? Hearing and doing is uh, the equivalent of faith that 
acts, faith that works, faith that, that actually makes a difference or does something, uh, trusts God, obeys God, lives for God. That, in verse 26, he says, is true religion. And then uh, in chapter 2, what we looked at last week, he, um, he says, look, we show mercy because we've been shown mercy. We've been shown the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So then how can we be fa play favorites and be partial? We should be impartial. And we should be merciful as we have been shown mercy. That was the thrust of what he's saying. But if we do not show mercy, if we lap it up from what God has given us, but we don't show it and show it impartially, he says that's a faith that, in effect, that is just hollow. It's just a faith of words and not actions. And then in verse 12 and 13, just before what we read this morning, he really expects us to, to have a, a sense of security in the coming judgment because of God's mercy. And he draws upon that to say, we've got to, to be merciful as we have been shown mercy. So he's undergirding this sense of security that we have in Christ, but it shouldn't just be, you know, sponging it up without squeezing it out. He says that's a faith that acts on what God has done. So that last uh, passage where he talked about the poor versus the rich and partiality and not being merciful that is kind of an entree, or it's still in our minds if we were reading just right through the letter of James when we come to verse 15 and 16. He says, uh, he says look, here, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, let me illustrate what faith without works looks like. Let me illustrate what hearing without doing looks like. Let me illustrate what mercy without mercy looks like. If a brother or sister are practically naked and lacking daily nourishment, and one of them says, and one of you says to them, go in peace, or shalom, <laughs> you know, shalom, brother and sister. Go in peace, get warm, get plenty of food, I mean, that, that, the word actually implies, you know, just eat your fill. But yet you do not provide them with the bare necessities for their physical welfare. What good is it? It's just hollow words. Where's the love there that was shown to us? Where's the mercy that was shown to us? Where's the kindness that was shown to us in Christ Jesus? So he says, of course, can that kind of faith help, save, or justify, as he goes on to bring into view the question of justification in verse 24? It shows no faith in God, no trust in Jesus. 
as I said, I can't look at my life and, and see an unbroken chain of perfection <laughs> that uh, I'm just always energized, always doing the right thing, never selfish, never unkind. But if I know who I am supposed to be in Christ, then I increasingly, and now I'm looking back over many years of walking with the Lord, I'm, I'm quicker about responding. I own up to my failings. I do that a lot in my marriage, in my friendships, with pastoral staff, with you. I don't get a pass because I'm the pastor. Pastor. I just thought of that. Yeah, he's the pastor. In fact, I think we show an, you know, we show an example, a good example. In fact, James later in this letter, in the fifth chapter, will talk about, you know, confess your sins one to another. Don't act like you're perfect. We're all people of grace. We're all people of mercy. We're all people of God's kindness and uh, lavish gen generosity. And when we are aware of our shortcomings, then we're also, in Christ, aware of the riches of his mercy and gratitude and goodness. So I think they're kind of symbiotic or, you know, because you're, yeah, you're aware that maybe you've, you've disappointed your own standards, the, the standards of some loved one in your life, if you let them down the Lord, but you become aware that, okay, I, I'm not disqualified. I'm not told to clear out my locker and go home. You're off the team. You're no longer a part of the family. No, in that grace and mercy, you, you realize how great is the love of God in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it takes a little time to learn those things. And that's, again, what I talk about, what I mean when I talk about, say, imperfections. As a young new believer, and this was a, a huge thing for, for me. It took me weeks to figure it out. Um, I was keenly aware of uh, my unchristlike kinds of reactions or or behavior, whether it was driving or, you know, when someone disappointed me, I became aware of my sinfulness, okay? Shouldn't have done that. I could have handled that better. I could have been more loving. I could have been more gracious. I could have been less selfish, you know? But it, it, it was just overwhelming me, and, and I knew First John 1, 9, that was one of those early verses that I memorized. If we confess, in other words, if I, if I admit, see, if I admit, if I, if I agree, God, you're right, that wasn't very kind or that, was, uh, that wasn't very Christ-like. If I agree with him and admit that, he's faithful. In other words, he never, he never 
fails to show up and forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, which is unfaithfulness. It's uh, falling short of what uh, a son should be to his mother or father or a wife to her husband or husband to his wife or father to children or children to father. Those are all relationships. And the righteousness is about being faithful to the demands of the relationship. Well, uh, I had that well memorized, and yet I felt, I felt like God was upset with me. And uh, you know what happens when I feel like God is upset with me? He's disappointed in me. Um, he doesn't maybe like me. Okay, he loves me, but he doesn't like me. Uh, what happens then is uh, I've got a group that I'm going to meet, like I meet every week for, we're going to get into the Word and share and have time together. And I call up and I say, you know, I'm feeling kind of lousy. I'm not going to make it this week. And then church comes around and then I, oh, I'm not going to participate because I feel disqualified. I feel unworthy. I don't feel like I belong there, that I'm a bad apple. I'm that bruised grape. I'll bet that has been your experience as well as mine at some point and maybe frequently in your life where those things get under your skin and they just, uh, you're out of whack. I felt like my prayers were as heavy as lead. They just, they didn't, the Lord didn't hear my prayers. I was in a funk. And that went on for some time. I was just wrestling. I'd talk to the Lord. I And I don't remember what triggered it, but here was what I realized. I realized that I was associating God with my Father, not with Jesus. Um, I, I love my dad. We had a checkered relationship. Dad, uh, as I mentioned last week, he was moral, but he wasn't merciful. And uh, boy, when I was on his bad side, go to your room, spanking, he'd leave the room, and, and then for two and three days, he would, he would be distant. He would be especially unloving. He would, I would call it fuming. Maybe you know, you have friends sometimes that are like that. They will not, you acknowledge you're wrong, but they don't accept it. They may say the right things, but they continue to bear kind of a grudge. There's this distance. There's disharmony. And that was very strong in my life. Waiting for my dad, I'd keep my distance. I would work around dad. I would stay in another part of the house. It got to the point where if mom, you know, 
Mom would say, oh, that was your dad. He's working late tonight. And I'm thinking, ah, great. I'm so happy. Just me and Mom. You don't want a relationship with God our Father like that. And yet sometimes there are human relations that kind of crowd our view of God. And we start to think maybe God is like these humans in our lives, not like Jesus Christ. Boy, if there's one thing you remember from what I'm talking about this morning, I hope you remember this, that we want... We want to live and put our faith in and trust in the one true God. He has been rightly and perfectly, beautifully and profoundly revealed in Jesus Christ. I can't imagine Jesus treating me like my dad did. If that would make a difference in my life, just imagine what it would be like if you and I treated others like we know Jesus would treat us because that's the way God in Christ treats us. It makes a huge difference. And even when you are disappointed and you renounce what you did, you know it's bad. You own up to it 100%. Get back up on your horse and go forward and just leave it in the dust because all that will do is cripple your faith. It diminishes what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It diminishes his love, his sacrificial love that is so great that he died in our place. He died to demonstrate his love. That's a love that says, lift your head up. Let me see your eyes. We're good. We're good. Now get back in there. Get back in there. Love like me. Forgive like me, just as I've forgiven and loved you. I think that's very important for us to understand. And if we understand that fundamentally, then we're not afraid of a faith that's called to express what we believe, who our Lord is, who our God is, how he loves us and shows us mercy. We'll consider not only the questions, but these challenges. And in verse 18, there's an objection. And really, the thrust of it is, look, uh, you have faith, I have works. I'll show you my faith through my works, my actions, the expressions of my faith. I'll show you, I'll demonstrate is the actual word. It's the word that is used to prove something. And I've found it in many examples, ancient examples from the period in which uh, they talk about uh, proving the value, the quality, the true metal of a coin. So here it is. He says, uh, I'll demonstrate through my works. Uh, you demonstrate your faith with nothing. James asks in verse 19, what's the difference between a demon's faith and your faith? In other words, faith that has no expression 
uh, no works, no actions. And he goes on to describe the demons as believing. He says, you believe God is one. Well, of course, that goes back to the core belief of the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, which means, that's Hebrew, which means hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord alone. So he says, you believe that? Fantastic. That, that's great. That's, we all got to be right there. But he says, uh, even the demons believe. And they, they actually shiver with fear because he exists. But you see, even though they get emotional about it, they don't love him, they don't obey him, they don't worship him. So this was a, a real ch chilling challenge to me as a... You know, as I began to grow in Christ and follow him, it really helped me to distinguish our faith from that of even supernatural beings that oppose God. They believe he exists. It's not just about believing he exists. It's about loving him and obeying him and letting him be our God. You may even recall in uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark and other Gospels where, where Jesus would meet up with demon-possessed people. For example, in Mark 5, 7, one, one of the people says, I implore you by God. Well, that just knows the language, doesn't he? Or uh, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he quoted Scripture to him verbatim. He knew the word. Ah, we can know the word. That's uh, pretty profound. But we've got to remember that's not enough. And James even addresses that kind of thing when he talks about hearing without any doing. So consider these examples, he says, in verses 20 through 26. And um, in verse 20, he says, uh, you want me to show you? And then he says... It, most of our passages, our, our translations say, you foolish person, you fool. Um, the word actually means empty. <laughs> I don't think James chose that without reason. In other words, here's a person that's standing on a faith without works, and he is, he calls him a, we often, sometimes we, call that person a futile or empty or vain person, but he uses the word empty. He just says, kanah, you kanah, you empty guy, because what? He has no works. And then he goes on to say, I want to show you that your faith without works is useless or not working. So it's a real play on words. You who are empty, your faith is not working. The word there describing useless, as it's uh, translated by most of the translations, not, it actually means not working. 
The word for work is, or works, is erga. And this is agron. In other words, it's got an alpha privative or a negative in front. Like when we say theist, atheist, non-theist, right? Atheist. So worker, non-worker, non-working. So it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. And he goes on to uh, characterize genuine faith or faith that works with two people, Abraham and Rahab. Now you have to understand as readers are well acquainted with Genesis 22 and when God tells Abraham to take his, his precious, his one and only son, um, his son of promise, up to Moriah, and he says, uh, take up the wood and everything you need for a sacrifice. He does that. And it proves to God uh, that Abraham trusts and loves God even more than his precious son. Um, but because of that, Abraham is the, he's the object of, of all of these promises, and we call him Father Abraham. In fact, he's called our father right here. Paul in Galatians 3 even says he's the father of our faith because of the faith that he expressed. So James and, and Paul both in their writings talk about Abraham not just as the father of the nation, Israel, and the people, but the father of our faith in Christ because he was justified by faith. Now, the reason I'm trying to give a little sense of just Abraham, I'm no Abraham, I'm just John. I could never be an Abraham. Well, of course he's justified by his faith because he demonstrated his trust in God. He demonstrated his belief in God and God counted him uh, justified. But that's Abraham, that's not me. But then there's another example, Rahab. And that's what we see in verse 25. And of course, this story is also very familiar to the people from uh, Joshua 2. Rahab, who's she? Well, she wasn't even among the people of God. She was an outsider. She was a stranger. She was a foreigner. She's called a prostitute. Maybe she was a religious prostitute, which would then stress the fact that she was an idolater, or from our perspective, an idolater. She believed in foreign gods, but she sees, if you read the story, what God is doing through his people, and she harbors them, keeps the, the messengers or the spies safe, sees that they're uh, sent out another way, saves their lives, even though they're, they're being searched for by, by the, uh, the king. And she asks them to remember her. And, of course, uh, they do after they conquer Jericho. But the interesting thing is, is that uh, Rahab then became a 
a member of the people of God. And uh, she married, and she had a son. And her son's name was Boaz. And Boaz, although older, met a young woman named Ruth, and they were married, and they had a child. And that child was the grandfather of King David. And the lineage out of which God would fulfill his promises to Israel and the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the faith that James wants us to identify with. When we think, man, I'm no Abraham. Yeah, but you could be a Rahab. I'm a Rahab. You see, faith without works has no story. And what James is telling us is that faith that expresses itself in its words, in its actions, in love and kindness, mercy, grace, in all the ways that we express faith because of Jesus' relationship with us, you know, interacting with him. That kind of faith has a story. Someone called me yesterday. Um, we spoke for 45 minutes. I was working on this message. And uh, uh, she told me what we as the church, as God's people, had done for her. And she, 45 minutes, and through tears and rejoicing, uh, the little things that you did for her in a time of need, and the impact that it's had on parts of her family, and her parents, who are unbelievers, and on her own heart, and although she wasn't a member, she was a member in her heart, and she's been a part of our church and will be a part of our church. But the point of her bringing that up is you treated me just the same in matters that in a lot of other situations I would have been disqualified from. And I thought, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that was out there. You know, there's an, an old saying, it may, may even be kind of tired, but it continues to make a very strong point, and it's this. Uh, you may be the only Bible a person reads. But see, we, we can't... I, 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 if, I, if I said, oh, I'm going to live by faith because I can see the impact, and I weigh the consequences, you know, it's worth it. <laughs> we never have that luxury. We just walk with Christ. If we stumble, we acknowledge it. Oops. <laughs> Guess I'm not as sure-footed as I thought I was. What a goof I am. And we get up and go on. We learn to laugh at ourselves in Christ. Because there's joy in him, there's love, there's peace, there's patience, there's kindness, there's goodness, 
There's gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things are being bred in us through the Spirit. And as we walk in faith, we're actually writing a story of faith. We don't know what God's going to do with it, how deeply it's going to touch another person or how it's going to be a part and like a puzzle piece be fit into something else God is doing that we're totally unaware of. And God's, even as the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, verse 11 says, God makes everything beautiful in its time. And that includes you and me when we walk with him. When we get over ourselves and realize we are the object of his great love and a great plan and a great inheritance, he just wants us to thrive in him. He wants to be present in our thoughts and our lives. He wants to work through us to write a story that has the fingerprints of Christ all over it. Will you stand? I'm going to close us in prayer. I'm going to be up here along with uh, other members of our leadership, elders, deacons, pastoral staff, their spouses, as any are available. If you'd like to pray, maybe, uh, maybe you've been wallowing in some, you know, God, you're, I just know you're upset with me. Um, I would say it's time to pray and uh, maybe with someone else praying with you, put that in perspective and behind you and uh, move, move ahead in Christ. Maybe there's a, a real challenge before you and, it, and it's fearful and you're having a little trouble trusting God, really having that peace that passes understanding. You'd like to pray about that. We invite you to come or to pray for someone else. It's heavy on your heart because you, you so sympathize with what they're going through. It's painful for you to see them suffering in some way, whatever the need. But above all, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you don't know the very love of God, if you want to know the power of his forgiveness the power of his presence in your life through his spirit and the changes that come, we invite you to come. We'd like to share how that can begin today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, for your word from Genesis to Revelation, but thank you for James and the special way in which he shows us things about our Christian walk. And we thank you for your great love in Jesus. We thank you for the ongoing, never-failing work of your Spirit in our lives. Thank you for your, your love, your promises, your plan, your inheritance. Thank you that we belong to you. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.